Uh, keratoconus is an extraordinarily important disease. Uh, it impacts young people. It impacts quality of life. Uh, many of these patients go on to corneal transplantation. And uh, we have some new treatments and some new diagnostic areas that are, I think, really important for us to look through. Uh, Liz, how do you define keratoconus? Keratoconus is a primary corneal um, uh, dis disorder where um, there's an inherent thinning that occurs within the stroma. There are certain findings that are kind of mandatory as based on the 2015 global consensus on keratoconus and ectatic disease. But one, there is an abnormal posterior ectasia, two, abnormal corneal thickness and distribution, and three, clinically non-inflammatory corneal thinning. There are obviously multiple factors that affect keratoconus and its actual clinical manifestation. Some of it may be inherent with different genetic uh, components to it um, that are linked more, um, uh, more positively, and then other environmental factors. Terrific. Well, Thank you. Um, with that in mind, uh, how do you define keratoconus? How, how do you diagnose it? And um, I'm going to ask Dick Lindstrom about this. Dick's been involved in keratoconus and wrote, was an author in one of the seminal papers on ectasia several years ago. Uh, Dick, um, tell us about how you diagnose keratoconus. Well, historically, you know, we could do this pretty well, really, with the uh, looking at the patient's uh, refraction with uh, progressive myopia and astigmatism, looking at keratometry with uh, what we used to call tilting in the Myers. Uh, they used to use a Klein keratoscope to look for the irregular uh, topographic patterns. And uh, at the slit lamp, we could often see apical thinning, vertical stria, sometimes some scarring, a placer ring. And if we look from the side, uh, often a classical Munson sign, but today it's really a topography, tomography diagnosis. And, uh, you know, early on, what we look for is uh, steepness of the cornea anteriorly, uh, typically over 48 is uh, abnormal. Uh, we look for something called uh, skew deviation, where the, uh, you know, bow tie um, pattern of astigmatism doesn't align, it's tilted. Uh, and uh, especially looking at posterior curvature, that's where it often shows up first with, uh, you know, steepening uh, in the posterior curvature of the cornea on topography. And of course, uh, uh, the cornea is often thinner in that area of steepening. Uh, and so we look at the uh, pachymetry and the distribution of the pachymetry. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, this is not an inflammatory disease. So we want to rule that out as well. Many of these patients will also uh, manifest a, a family history. So early on, we did it without topography and tomography, but today really topography, tomography, pachymetry is uh, how most of us make the diagnosis. And we as corneal specialists all have access to these uh, technologies that allow us to make a diagnosis. Um, but many ophthalmologists, and I would say most optometrists, who are really the primary gatekeepers for uh, young people who are having worsening vision, they don't have access to topography. So um, what would you say, Netta, uh, should the doctor who does not have 
a topographer be looking for and be thinking about referring patients for a better diagnosis of keratoconus? Um, that's an excellent question and one that I, I handle almost on a daily basis through email exchanges and phone calls from referring doctors, uh, optometrists in the community. Uh, just today, um, I had an email sent over 14-year-old who uh, had had progressive change in their manifest refraction and, and you know, initially started with minimal correction, 20-20 vision, and then three years uh, later now has three diopters of astigmatism in one eye and less than one in the other. And the eye with the three diopters, it cannot be corrected uh, to 2020 uh, with manifest refraction. So without even seeing the patient, uh, I, I have a high level of suspicion in a 14 year old uh, who, you know, on further history gave some history of eye rubbing and such that this patient likely has keratoconus. And, and obviously telling the patient to come in for a more formal evaluation. So progressive myopic shift in, a, in someone who's younger than 30, um, uh, you know, with onset in, in their teens, especially if it's asymmetric astigmatism, increase in cylinder uh, more asymmetrically in one eye than the other, and a drop in best, uh, drop in best spectacle corrective visual acuity can be enough to really um, encourage the doctor who doesn't have access to these advanced diagnostics to refer to a cornea specialist who can make that diagnosis. Yeah, that was a great overview. And, I, and I, I think about that, how many times patients have come to see me who have a chief complaint that their vision can't be refracted to 2020 and then we, we diagnosis. So uh, the earlier these patients are referred, the better their prognosis. So um, I think these are very important points. Uh, many of our optometric colleagues also do retinoscopy and look for you know, a uh, scissoring reflex that can be very helpful in making the diagnosis as well. Consensus finding number one. The top two criteria for evaluating keratoconus are abnormal topography and abnormal corneal thickness and distribution. We've talked about diagnosing it. Let's talk about um, some of the risk factors uh, of keratoconus and uh, I'll turn this over to Terry. And, 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 and Terry, um, who do you worry about having keratoconus? You really want to look out for this condition in our young patients. Uh, our younger patients are at higher risk because we know that their corneas are not cross-linked. And, you know, with age, you get a stiffer cornea. Um, and so these younger patients are definitely at higher risk. And, and, and you know, I remember uh, talking with Dick about, you know, when we, when we do a corneal transplant and you, you tree find that donor tissue and you can almost kind of guess the age of that donor tissue based on how flimsy it is. And, and that's something that, you know, tactile wise, we've all kind of experienced as corneal surgeons. So it's a, it's a true fact. So age is certainly a risk factor, uh, which is why it's also, you know, a risk factor for ectasia with any kind of corneal refractive procedure we do. Certainly genetics, uh, we're understanding, plays a, a bigger role too. Um, patients who uh, have keratoconus uh, should be all, always asked uh, about a family history and vice versa, who don't. If they have a positive family history, you should be concerned for this. Uh, we know uh, now, as we learn more about the genetics, uh, that there is uh, a genetic factor and a predisposition for keratoconus. And we also uh, think that there, in, in, there's an environmental component as well. 
so when you, you hear about patients who, who rub their eyes, whether it's due to ocular allergy, which we all know is, is prevalent, very prevalent uh, in today's society, as we see all the pollen everywhere, certainly down here in, in, in Southeastern United States, we see a lot of patients who have perennial and seasonal allergies and also more severe forms uh, like your atopic and your vernal patients. And these patients are at high risk and many of them are young. So you, you double that, that risk uh, as well. Um, there are a lot of uh, systemic comorbidities that are also associated with keratoconus, uh, such as Down syndrome and connective tissue disorders like Marfan's, Erlos, Danlos. And, and it's interesting, if you look at conditions like Down syndrome, we, we think it's not only um, a, uh, a, a genetic uh, predisposition here, but also an environmental one. So there's this double hit or two hit theory for these down patients uh, that probably have a predisposition you know, genetically and also are prone to rubbing their eyes. And also looking at, at ethnicity as well, if you look at the literature, uh, there have been studies shown that there's a higher incidence of keratoconus in patients of Asian descent and of Middle Eastern descent. And uh, published studies have shown a higher prevalence of this. So these are all risk factors. And, and, and also note that there's a lot of comorbidities that have been associated with keratoconus, which is why I think it's very important to identify and diagnose this at an early stage. For instance, we've, we've heard of uh, associations with some of the systemic diseases, but also things like sleep apnea, mitral valve prolapse, these have all been associated uh, in higher incidence of patients have keratoconus. So um, all risk factors and all things we wanna identify at an early stage. We see patients come in with family histories all the time and it's clear that genetics plays a very significant role in keratoconus. What do you tell a family member who has a sibling or a parent that has known keratoconus, what do you tell them about their risk factors for going on to develop keratoconus? I literally today had a patient that I was seeing for her detailed assessment pre-LASIK surgery and on her way out of the office mentioned, oh, and by the way, my dad has keratoconus. Is that something I should have mentioned to you? Um, and that really gave me pause because I think the genetics is something that's not completely understood yet. I mean, we know that genetics is a portion of it. Um, and what I quote my patients is somewhat around like 10%, but we don't really know. Um, and because we don't know, we need to try and get all the information that we can. And so having access to knowing exactly what markers we could be looking for that might allow us to better predict for patients specifically if you have certain genetic risk factors, um, is this something that you're going to be more prone to? So I think it's in a really important part of, of understanding this complex disease. One other um, risk factor that we could talk about, which is obesity. So obesity is a more recent potential risk factor for keratoconus. Has anyone else seen that as a risk factor? It's, it came out in a paper uh, recently from, I guess, the Israelis. Uh, in Israel, they did a paper and found that it was associated. Has anyone else noticed that or seen that in their practice? Well, you know, we made that association with the sleep apnea too. So many of those patients are obese. So I think there is some, some association there. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think that's part of the epidemic. I think the keratoconus is really increasing in incidence and prevalence. Uh, a lot of it having to do with, uh, with obesity and uh, eye rubbing, uh, sleep apnea, floppy eyelid syndrome, all point towards obesity do uh, uh, significantly playing a role. 
Consensus finding number two. 12 of 13 believe that it is extremely important to review keratoconus risk factors in every corneal refractive surgery candidate. Consensus finding number three. On average, 20% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have at least one risk factor of keratoconus. 10 of 13 believe that at least 10% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have at least one risk factor of keratoconus. Let's talk about progression of keratoconus. Um, what do you follow in patients who have keratoconus? Uh, how do you follow them? How often do you follow them? And what do you look for? Eric, that's one of the most challenging but interesting questions that you can ask because our patients with keratoconus come in and they're questioning, okay, is their condition progressive or not? And the things I look at most, of course, and most importantly is vision. So one thing you can follow is the uncorrected and best corrected visual acuity. And that's obviously most impactful to patients as well as symptoms like ghosting and other symptoms you know, that they may complain of. That's kind of the visual side. And then also looking at the shape of the cornea. And on my end, I look at um, K-max is one area that we look at, but just even more importantly, I, I like to look at what's called difference maps, which is where you could look at in the initial encounter, you look at the tomography or topography, and then look at their next visit, look and see the changes. And if a patient's stable, you'll see that things look pretty stable from one map to the other, but if they're progressing, you'll see typically that the C part of the cornea is getting steeper and the flat part of the cornea is getting flatter. Those are kind of some of the things I'm looking at is vision, best corrective visual acuity, and changes over time. And I, and I would say also uh, corneal thickness map and in the areas where the thinning is, the, the progressive thinning of the cornea uh, is uh, obviously part of the whole diagnosis and the uh, progressive nature of this, of this condition. Netta, I, I love that diagnostic uh, aid as well. And uh, I like to look at a tomography, looking at the uh, thickness of the cornea. Not only do keratoconus patients have thinning, but the thinning is usually eccentric. A normal cornea is thinnest at the apex of the cornea. What happens in patients with keratoconus? Um, the, as as uh, Bill and you were mentioning, the, the thinnest part of the cornea becomes more eccentric. It's, it's typically more inferior. Um, and, and as a result, it's usually correlated with the area of the steepening. And, and that is, tends to be more progressive. Um, and uh, in addition to that, you can look at epithelial thickness maps. So over the apex of, of the cone, uh, the epithelial maps, if you do uh, do uh, OCT of the epithelium, the epithelial thickness then uh, thins over the apex. Uh, and that could also be a sign of progressive keratoconus. Dick, what do you tell your patients who have keratoconus about eye rubbing and, and, and what steps do you take to decrease this? Well, I, I always ask the patient if they're you know, their eye rubbers, and sometimes they'll say no, and then their you know, wife or husband or uh, significant other or even parent will say, yeah, you rub your eyes all the time. And I think it, it is important to, to look into that. You know, there are some that believe, you know, it's a two-hit story, as was mentioned, that that genetic predisposition is one and eye rubbing is number two. So it is a critical factor. Um, I do counsel patients not to rub their eyes. I look uh, carefully for allergy and 
and treat allergy because that tends to encourage eye rubbing. Some patients with very asymmetric keratoconus, I query them about uh, how they sleep. If it's you know face down buried in a pillow or on their arm, that can be an issue as well. So I believe there is a mechanical factor in many of these patients. I, I think they have a genetic predisposition, but then uh, you know that there can also be a, uh, a trauma, if you will, of either eye rubbing or face down on a pillow or on your arm that can uh, basically make things worse. Sometimes you can even, in, in patients who have been chronic eye rubbers, you can see changes in the skin around their eyelids. You can see that kind of leathery changes of their eyelids. And I often can detect a more change or more significant change in the skin around the eyelids on the side that's more uh, progressed uh, in, the, in the keratoconus. And um, you know, the kind of the fine lines of the skin around, especially in these young patients where you don't expect um, uh, you know, wrinkles around their eyelids, you may actually see that if you're looking close enough. You know, Netta, um, um, my group, uh, we published a paper 25 years ago, the first time linking floppy eyelid syndrome and keratoconus. And I've just noted, noted over the last several years that, that at least half of my patients who come in with keratoconus uh, and specifically ectasia after LASIK will also have floppy eyelid syndrome. So I, I look for that on every single patient who comes in with keratoconus. How often do you follow these patients who have keratoconus and what determines who you bring back sooner and who you bring back maybe on a yearly basis? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, knowing that this is a condition that is a progressive condition, often my younger patients I'll follow extremely closely because it does tend to progress when patients are younger. Um, I'll also, if it's my first visit with the patient, follow them quite closely. So see them back within you know, a few months or so, repeat testing. Because I like to know if this is something that's continuing to progress or if this is something that's been picked up later in life that you know, by chance they hadn't needed any kind of treatment or intervention prior to that then I like to know. So if somebody's younger, um, if they're rapidly progressing, I think the sooner that you diagnose this condition the, and the faster you can offer treatment, the better visual quality these patients can achieve. Well, let's talk about the prevalence and demographics of keratoconus in various patient populations. And that brings up a very, very basic question to today's discussion. That is, how common is keratoconus? Um, Netta? I think it's a lot more common than, than what has been published. Um, you know, some of these publications, the, the first one that, that is uh, highlighted from 1986, this is before we had advanced diagnostics and really was based on uh, detection of scissors reflex with retinoscopy and keratometry outcomes. And that's often very advanced keratoconus that you, you can detect that. So one in 2000 uh, patients have more moderately advanced keratoconus. And this is not including the, the early form Proust or, or earlier keratoconics that we'd wanna be able to detect. And then there's other studies that have shown as, as uh, low as one or as, as prevalent as one in 375 in the Netherlands. So we also commented on how regionally uh, this is a problem in, among Asians and, and I'm from Iran and it, it's a big problem in Iran. It's actually the most common reason for um, corneal transplantation, um, or, or the, they have the highest number of corneal transplantations per capita, I think, for a long time than any other country. And Dr. Hashemi is, has become a master in corneal transplantation as a result of it. And so I think, 
you know, overall, it, it's hard to quote exactly. I think it's somewhere around one in 500. Um, and as we were mentioning, I think it's definitely on the rise. And the better we get in detecting this, um, I think the higher the prevalence will, the quoted prevalence will be. Well, when you look at this, at these numbers here, they're all over the place, but you see places like Saudi Arabia, they're suggesting that one in 20 patients may have keratoconus in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, those are extremely high numbers, but I, I, but I, I am certain it's higher than one in 375 uh, in the United States based on my experience uh, in, our, in our practice as well. So it varies by region. Obviously there's a genetic predisposition that plays a role in why certain ethnicities have an increased risk of keratoconus. And, and there's some thought about environmental too, with Saudi Arabia, Iran, you know, being desert, desert environment with the dust and such, and the thought being genetic as well as just environmental dryness and allergies that may be associated with that. Here's you know, some of these issues that we're talking about here. Um, Ashley, um, why are there different uh, numbers of keratoconus in different areas of the world? Uh, we've already brought up the aspect of environmental areas, but uh, there's some other areas to talk about as well. Yeah, I agree. I just think our diagnostics have improved so much. Um, and you know, some of these studies, I think if we if we started to reevaluate some of those numbers based on newer diagnostic criteria, um, we would be really surprised. I mean, I practice in New York City, which is an extremely diverse city. Um, and so I do think that it's a higher proportion of what's quoted for the general US because I see such a diverse group of patients. I think as well, the ethnic variation as we discussed and the environmental. Um, it's interesting as we were mentioning in one of the other sessions, we were discussing eye rubbing as a risk factor. And we had spoken before about how often you'll ask patients and they say no, but a family member does say yes. And so sometimes when you start to bring up these uh, specific factors um, within the patient groups and having these multiple risks, we do start to see that the incidence is higher than otherwise suspected. In terms of the incidence, you know, I, uh, maybe didn't pay attention as much to the incident and how it had been increasing until I started performing cross-linking. And then I just started seeing all these patients come out from all over our, our uh, immediate area and our referring, uh, even outside our referring area when we started offering crossing. So this really opened my eyes in terms of how prevalent the disease was. And also, you know, I strongly think, you know, as others have mentioned, the alkali allergy thing is a big thing. We're, we're seeing more allergy in general in our populations as well. And so I think, you know, if you look at some of these large longitudinal studies, it's amazing how such a high percentage of these keratoconus patients have atopic disease. So you really need to look for patients who have eczema, asthma, allergic rhinitis. These are all clues that, you know, they may also have keratoconus as well. So one other thing, and it's just actually a question to Terry. If you think about the patients being referred in, I bet most of the patients have moderate to severe keratoconus. And there's so many patients that are being missed that have mild and early keratoconus. And so there's probably so many patients that in the U.S. that just are early or not being diagnosed. And Terry, just your thoughts on that. Oh, no, absolutely. You're right, Bill, because by the time they're coming in, you know, they are certainly at the moderate to severe stage. So I'm hoping we can shift that uh, earlier. Uh, and we need to get that, certainly that message out. We need to be um, better at diagnosing keratoconus. We need to diagnose it sooner because we have better therapeutic methods now to treat these patients. So diagnosing keratoconus early and recognizing patients at risk for keratoconus 
has never been important because for the first time, we can actually do something about these patients. And here are some numbers we see worldwide uh, that keratoconus is, is extraordinarily common and, and uh, something that we're seeing uh, on a routine basis every day. Consensus finding number four. On average, approximately one in 400 LASIK procedures are performed on keratoconus patients who will develop signs and symptoms during the next 10 years.